I want to say go America, but is that corny? Like, I'm just so proud. <laughs> good. No, that's that's so good to hear. We should be because the last four years have been really depressing. You know, our industry has become more more digital, more complex. So the big agencies really don't have this stranglehold on full-service relationships the way they, they once did. That's Shantae Young, followed by advertising legend Jim Copasino. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Well, the waiting is over. We have a new president and vice president-elect. Words do matter, and the tone Joe Biden and Kamala Harris established at their acceptance speech on Saturday night is a 180-degree turn from what we have been sadly experiencing over the last four years. They offered unity, and they offered hope. Make no mistake, though, the next several weeks will be as divisive as anything we have ever seen. Jim Copasino, co-founder of Copasino and Fujikado, will be joining us shortly to talk about major changes in the advertising industry. If you have had a mild interest in advertising as a profession or possibly in need of an advertising or marketing professional, I suggest you stick around and hear what Jim has to say. If you hear anything on Voices of Experience that you would like to comment on, call 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Shantae Young, co-host of The Way with Chaz and Tay, spoke with me Saturday morning about an hour after Joe Biden was declared the winner. I wanted her reaction to the election and how she feels about her country going forward. Now, you can hear Shantae's and Jasmine Kendrick's radio show on KKNW at 7 a.m. on Thursday mornings. So let's get right to it with Shantae. Joe Biden has gone from former vice president to now president-elect. Kamalia Harris has gone from, well, she's still a U.S. senator, but to vice president-elect. How are you feeling? I am extremely excited. I really don't know how to explain the feeling other than just hopeful and really proud. Like, I think that the voter turnout in and of itself is speaks for itself. But I'm just really glad that as a collective, we came together and we were like, let's do the right thing. And for a while, I was I was keeping a very like kind of pessimistic view about it because I just really didn't want to be let down but to be proved wrong (laughs) and for Joe Biden to um you know be projected to win and you know Kamala to be our projected vice president is just awesome like I can't wait to just celebrate for the rest of the day (laughs) yeah I hear you and uh you know one thing I was thinking about is that it's not as important as it was before but certainly Georgia weighs heavily into this whole thing and you were down there and spent quite a bit of time you actually lived there for a while and that's kind of i think home for you in many ways what did you pick up when you were down there both with the senate races and of course the uh, presidential race one thing i will say is that uh, there were four things that i was not expecting uh based off of tuesday night and georgia turning blue was one of those things i did not expect my family is in the decatur area which is a little bit to the east of Atlanta, but still kind of considered Atlanta, uh, like greater Atlanta area. And in that area, it is pretty democratic. But everywhere else in Georgia, it's still very red, very Republican, conservative views. And 
and if I'm being honest, very racist. Of course, when I was there, I saw all of the commercials for the, the Senate seats, and I saw commercials for Purdue and Warnock and Kelly Loeffler, as well as Ossoff. And I actually asked my stepmom and my dad, how was Georgia leading? Like, who do people that you know like, and who do you like for the Senate? And the vast majority of them were like, we like Warnock, and he has a very... I want to say that he's very well, like, embedded in the community as well, which I think is a large part as to why he's doing so well in this race. He's actually a reverend, and he actually was at the same church that Martin Luther King Jr. used to preach at as well. Um, so he's deeply embedded in the community, and I think that the the community of Atlanta, people in Atlanta are like, we want someone who looks like us, who who comes from where we come from and understands our values and We'll also kind of just turn the state or the city kind of in a different direction because I feel like it's kind of time for that. There's going to be a runoff in both the Senate races in Georgia, and that will decide who's going to control the Senate. So that's huge. I was doing some research earlier today because from where I sit as an outsider, I figured that it was the uh, large black population in Atlanta that kind of turned Georgia blue. But actually what I found is that it was youth voter turnout. So people between the ages of like 18 and 29 um, had a very large part in Georgia's uh, votes going blue. Some of the organizations that are in Georgia that are really just trying to help these voters, one, understand their rights, understand voting, understand what they're voting for, and to really get people out there to vote, actively vote, and it shows. Well, you know, one thing that uh, I can give maybe Trump some credit, and that is unintentional, of course, but he definitely did what you're recognizing, that votes count, that you need to turn out. This is something that we were kind of losing our way, and I think that's why we lost in 2016, because people kind of sat mm-hmm. home. But now you had a turnout of 75 million people voted for Biden. That's the good news. The bad news, I guess, is 70 million people still voted for Trump. However, I'm going to take and celebrate this as kind of what you're (laughs) alluding to, or not alluding, saying, is that the momentum of people are really grasping that now, how important it is to vote and turn out, and hopefully this will carry on. Absolutely. Um, I know I've seen some, you know, social media posts still, you know, in the midst of all this where, People are saying, you know, your vote doesn't really matter. It really comes down to the electoral votes. But I just have to disagree because, you know, Georgia and Pennsylvania going blue and us watching them start off red and knowing, you know, the history in Georgia, they have consistently been red uh, for pretty much the past like 30 years. Um, with the exception of 1976, 1980, and 1992, Georgia's consistently red. I feel like black voters came out, and, and that shows, like, Georgia does not go blue without the vote of the people. And I give a lot of the credit, or most of the credit, not a lot of it, most of it, to the African Americans who really put Biden in. They turned it around in South Carolina, and uh, the cities mm-hmm. uh, that you're speaking of, Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Houston, I mean, and there was nine hours. African-Americans mm-hmm. are the ones who really, they have come through. 
I completely agree. I'm just so happy. And I'm really happy as well to see. I kind of feel like I was focused on Georgia because I, again, I had a very pessimistic view of Georgia going blue. We've gone through four years of what's felt like insanity. And it felt like most of the country was okay with that and wanted to repeat it. And I just felt so disheartened and um, defeated, to be honest. And now I'm like, yes, I can be happy about this. I feel good to celebrate it. Biden is going to win by over 4 million votes. A stat that I think is very important for people to grasp is that the Democrats have won the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And in that same time frame, the Republicans have been able to appoint six out of the nine Supreme Court members. Think of that for a moment how dominating the Democrats have been by the will of the people, the population, but six of the Supreme Court members have emerged from Republican presidents. I think that, again, speaks to going back that Electoral College needs to go away. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a completely antiquated practice. It's unfair. It it does make the people feel like there's no reason to vote. I feel like most of us see that the electoral votes in electoral college is not working in a way that is good for the majority or for you know all of America. I completely agree with you. What happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, like that was so defeating and devastating. And I feel like that's why so many voters this time around had that mentality, like, well, it's just going to go however, however uh, the electoral votes go. And again, it's disheartening. It just makes you not want to put your voice out there and not want to put your opinion. But one thing that I've that I've been saying this election is that it's far it's about far more than just the presidential election as well. Um, there was there were far more things on our ballots than just who's going to be the president. And I think that when it comes to local and community change, those are the those are the things that really matter. Well, it's a good day. Yes, it is. I'm so happy. Yeah, I thought this was I'm... going to be a totally different conversation. Anything else before we go? I, I want to say go America, but is that corny? Like, I'm just so proud. <laughs> good. No, that's that's so good to hear. We should be because the last four years have been really depressing. Got a guy who lies 20,000 plus times. He's trying to stoke fear into people. He's the coronavirus, yeah. uh, you know. He's handled that in, in terribly. I mean, thousands of people have literally died from his uh, mismanagement of this, and that's being kind. We needed to get this, uh, get this uh, across the line, or I really don't know where we would have been. Um, I really didn't want to see that. I was. I'm so happy that it that it's looking like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. My thanks to Shantae Young. Now listen to the way with Chaz and Tay on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m right here on KKNW. Very refreshing to hear her optimism. Coming up in just a moment, Jim Copacino. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
Like almost every facet of society, the advertising business is going under some major changes. Seattle advertising icon Jim Copasino identified some major shifts in the advertising industry when he wrote an article titled, Ad Biz Truisms Demolished. Jim was the co-founder of Copasino Fujikato before stepping down in 2018. If you have enjoyed the Seattle Mariners commercials over the last 25 plus years, that is the work of Copasino and Fujikato. Jim identified five major trend shifts in the advertising industry. Let's start with the first. I know half the money I spend on advertising is wasted, but I don't know which half. You're talking about targeting now. You know, I think everybody who's been in marketing has heard this uh, this, this old chestnut. Uh, and for a long time, it was true because we were so reliant on mass media that we just put messages out there on TV and radio and billboards and magazines and newspapers and uh, hope they work, you know, because it was, you know, we could target to a degree, but it was very imprecise. Then, of course, the science of direct marketing came along, direct mail, you know, more specifically. And that gave us a little better idea of um, what kind of response we were getting from a message. But it was still imprecise. And, of course, direct mail didn't have the impact that uh, the, the mass media had in terms of building a brand. But, uh, you know, at the turn of the century with, with, with digital technology, we're able to really pinpoint very accurately and very precisely who's responding to a message. It enables us to do what is known as A-B testing, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is you put two messages out there and you see, did message A get a better response than message B? And then you can continue to refine the, the message based on the response you get from digital media. People clicked did people react, how much time did they spend with the message and so forth. All these statistics and, and the algorithms that they develop, you know, it's remarkable. It's, it's that one-to-one marketing phenomenon that, that we've seen in the last uh, 15 years or so. Jim, is there such a thing maybe though by paralysis, by analysis, that you can do too much research into something? Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up at a time when and worked for was lucky enough to work for a number of agencies that really believed in the big idea. And, you know, creative drove things, sometimes to an excessive degree. What I was saying as I was leaving the business to young people who were, you know, really smart and really analytical and really data driven, I would remind them that uh, just because you can count an impression doesn't mean you've made an impression. So I think sometimes, uh, you know, there's over-reliance on analytics because we get a spreadsheet that said X number of consumers or uh, this percentage of the audience was exposed to a message. This percentage of the audience spent X amount of time with the message. This percentage of the audience clicked on the message. And that's all very helpful, of course, as you go through the purchase funnel. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's not a math problem solely. You know, you, we, we communicate with the head and the heart. Number two, right. the answer is advertising. Now, what is the question? And this I read is saying that the advent of digital, social media, that has made it more intimate with the customer. Exactly. You know, I don't know if anybody ever actually said that, but that was sort of the attitude two or three decades ago, that it was simply if you want more sales, just go out there and buy more media. You'll eventually uh, get to the consumer and, and, and your message will uh, take hold. But with the you know proliferation of digital and social media, uh, brands can now have more frequent and more intimate conversations really with their audiences. 
And the, the best example I can give to this is the, uh, you know, the highly touted uh, REI opt outside campaign that they started about three or four years ago. And they do every year now, which on Black Friday, REI says to its audiences, basically, we're closing our, our stores. Don't shop on Black Friday. Get out and hike and, and, and ski and, and enjoy the outdoors, which is uh, you know, a pretty remarkable message where a, a retail brand is saying, uh, don't shop on Black Friday, but it really hits home to their, their loyalists and, 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 and their market. You know, people love the outdoors. And rather than just bombard people with mass market media now, we can really segment markets very specifically and deliver the right message at the right time to the, to the right people. Yeah, it's a very good point in terms of looking at what REI did the exact opposite of what you would expect. And then people would admire them and say, wow, it's not all about the money either. They really care about us, right? Right, exactly. And most importantly, uh, it's true to their values as a company, you know, which is, uh, yes, we're in in commerce, but we care about the environment. We care about health. We care about uh, people, uh, you know, bringing balance to their lives. So it really fits in perfectly with the REI brand and, and ethos. Number three, the audience wants to see an idealized image of itself in advertising. Well, yeah, when I was coming up, you know, it was sort of um, understood that we we wanted to portray the consumer as the the ideal, oftentimes suburban, white, traditional family. And, uh, you know, that that's what played on, on mass media in that era. But but this was really a kind of code for, uh, you know, cast attractive white people in your ads as we become more aware and more diverse a population and hopefully more tolerant a population. Brands, brands are, are, are more open to depicting people of color, you know, black people, indigenous people. Uh, as as well as uh, LGBTQ individuals in their advertising messages, and uh, and I cited a survey uh, in the article from uh, Deloitte that found that advertisers that present racial and gender greater racial and gender diversity achieve a higher market share, more favorable public perception, and increased stock prices. So, so it's not uh, only the right thing to do; it the messaging it uh, it works. Yep, yeah, it's on the right side of history because we're becoming a much more diverse, uh, much more uh, brown society, brown and black society. And and this is where you brought in the Nike social justice yeah. messaging. Right. And, you know, Nike is more than a, a sneaker company, of course. It's really a lifestyle brand. And, and their power, you know, given their relationships with professional sports teams and their, their high visibility, Nike has a, a unique uh, pulpit, you know, to talk about social issues. They did that very bold Colin Kaepernick campaign uh, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, about Kaepernick's sacrifice that, that he made to, to make a social justice statement. And, you know, I, my conclusion is that, that their social justice messages, as well as the brand's overall influence, helped persuade professional sports leagues to to embrace Black Lives Matter. Wherein when Kaepernick first uh, made that protest, he was blackballed by the NFL and now we see NFL games, MLB games, WNBA and NBA games w- with uh, the athletes and, and the teams proudly showing their uh, support of, of Black Lives Matter and racial justice and police brutality issues and so forth. So it's a, r- a r- remarkable turnaround in a short period of time. And I, I agree with you. And I didn't really connect the dots and go back to 
where it began, and certainly it, with um, Kaepernick taking a knee. Number four, yes. e-commerce will never replace the in-person retail experience. I look at this as maybe being the report of my death is greatly exaggerated. Mark Twain, you're <laughs> saying retail type of approaches, brick and mortar type of operations are not dead. Right. I mean, certainly brick and mortar retail will never be what it once was. But, you know, I think a lot of people uh, draw a line and say it's either or, you know, we're going to all be, uh, you know, the brick and mortar proponents say that you can't replace that experience. It's impossible. And, and of course, the digital proponents say the expense and hassle and difficulty of, of shopping, of driving to your shopping center, driving to the downtown core and going to a store is, is, is antiquated. You know, in my view and view of most experts, it's not an either or situation. It's it's. Um, the future belongs to retailers that can combine the sort of high-touch gratification of traditional retail with the convenience of, uh, of online shopping. And, and we do both. We'll continue to do both, and consumers demand that. And one example I gave is Warby Parker, which, of course, burst on the scene as a very successful online retailer uh, of, of uh you know, uh, glasses, uh, prescription lenses. And it's interesting what they're doing. On, on their website now, they have a, uh, they offer an, a smartphone app that enables you to virtually try on glasses. So through this app, you can pick a pair of glasses, look at yourself uh, on the phone and see what the glasses appear like on their face. So they're really bringing that in-store type, virtual in-store type uh, experience to, to online shopping. But at the same time, they're opening retail stores all over the country. I think that shoppers are going to demand this kind of hybrid model from, from retailers. We might want to go to Banana Republic so that we can try on jeans and make sure they fit, and make sure they're right. Yet we might go home and buy a buy a uh, an SUV online. You know, So it's really interesting right. how those shopping patterns are changing. Yeah, it's certainly diminishing, as you pointed out. But I'm glad to hear that it's not going to be totally eliminated because socially that isn't a great thing. I mean, we know this, and I think you noted at the top of the article that a lot of what's happening now, the pandemic really sped it along, along with Amazon, yes. what we're going to be dealing with. But eventually this would have happened anyhow. That's so, right. And, uh, and even Amazon is experimenting with brick-and-mortar stores, which is really interesting. Yes, so. absolutely. And if they're doing it, uh, pay attention. Number five, yes, big brands sure. aren't interested in small agencies. And what you're saying now, they're um, going back to specialization, which is a good thing. That's, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, this is near and dear to my heart because, uh, you know, in the last uh, 25 years ago, 25 years or so, I, I've been involved with small agencies. But, uh, you know, once upon a time, and, and you remember this, Paul, the big agencies were vertically integrated. So they provided, no matter what the service a marketer wanted, the big global agencies would say, oh, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. In many cases, they did it, and they did it well. But, you know, our industry has become more more digital, more complex. So the big agencies really don't have this stranglehold hole on full-service relationships the way they, they once did. And what's really interesting is mega brands uh, today really have no problem reaching out to talented uh, smaller agencies or consultants or specialist agencies, regardless of, the, of their size. Uh, they're looking for small firms with big ideas that are, uh, and even just freelancers, you know, who are nimble, uh, experienced, and who can, who can uh, deliver quickly. And the, these types of, of individuals and smaller organizations are, are getting plum assignments from, uh, 
Fortune 500 brands. Uh, and, and, you know, I think this has changed and energized uh, our industry and, and, and the marketing landscape. And just as an example, this year's most popular Super Bowl commercial, which was the uh, Bill Murray for Jeep, uh, you know, the, the Groundhog Day uh, parody, uh, came from an agency in the Midwest with 30 employees. So the little guys are getting a shot at really big opportunities, and that's exciting. That's Jim Copacino, co-founder of Copacino Fujikado. I'm glad to learn from Jim that there's been a return to smaller agencies for advertising work. In the early 2000s, there was a major shift from smaller boutique agencies into the mega giant advertising agencies throughout the world. The explosion in digital technology has had its challenges, but smaller agencies have prospered and come back because of that. And so for that part of it, I think that's a good thing. On the October 20th show, I spoke with David Giffels, who wrote a book called Barnstorming Ohio. He had traveled the entire state to talk with people about their views on the country's direction. The major reason I spoke with David, Ohio had picked every winning presidential candidate since 1964 and 29 out of the last 31 elections. I wanted to hear where Ohio was leaning in 2020. David said that Trump was leading, but Biden was closing the gap. I said that I hope that if Ohio goes for Trump, that string will be broken. I even went as far as to say I would root for the Ohio State Buckeyes, a team that I don't really care for if Ohio went for Biden. The bad news is that, shockingly, this was not enough incentive. Trump carried Ohio. But the good news is that the string of Ohio picking the winner has come to an end. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Thank you to Jim Copacino and Shantae Young for joining us today. You know, democracy is messy, and it always will be. That's what happens when you have 145 million people trying to establish a path for a country to take. There are plenty of countries that value certainty and predictability. They are referred to as authoritarian or dictatorships. Democracy is fragile. We dodged a bullet with the election of Biden-Harris. The system worked, but it is definitely on life support. If you need any more proof on how close to the edge we have come to losing our democracy, just look at how Trump, his enablers, and many Republicans still will not accept the election results and are just plain lying about election fraud. Talk about frauds. Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States on January 20th, 2021. But it's going to be a very bumpy road until Biden is finally sworn in. But I now know you, we, are up to the challenge, all 75 million of us who collectively traded light for darkness. Quote of the week, judgments in history seldom coincide with the tempers of the moment. Adley E. Stevenson. Finally, just a reminder, COVID is roaring back. Do yourself, family, and friends a favor. No large indoor gatherings during the holiday season. We got through Trump. We can get through this. Betty White has the longest career in television than any entertainer in history, over 80 years and counting. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Betty White is most remembered for her roles in The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Golden Girls, spanning the late 70s into the early 90s. In 1954, she produced The Betty White Show, 
but the show faced criticism because it featured Arthur Duncan, an African-American performer, as a regular cast member. Southern stations threatened to boycott the show unless Mr. Duncan was taken off the air. Betty White's response? I'm sorry, live with it, and promptly increased Mr. Duncan's role on the show.